Welcome back to another Sound Truth interview. I'm your host, Adam Miller, and today I'm privileged to be joined by Melissa Zaldivar, who is the author of a book called What Cannot Be Lost, How Jesus Holds Us Together When Life is Falling Apart. I think that this is a feeling just about everyone listening to our broadcast has been through over the past couple of years. Loss has seemed to resonate with just about everyone I've interacted with over the past, uh, well, period of time. Uh, And I'm really excited to get into this book because it takes a completely different route than I think we're typically minded to go. And so, Melissa, it's a real joy to have you with us. Thank you for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I would say I'm glad to be here, but it's also, you know, a heavy topic. So I'm honored to get to be here and talk to you about this topic. Yeah. The topic of loss is is very heavy. It's very difficult. And uh, you don't write about this from a clinical point of view. You write from a very personal point of view. You share your own story in this. So that's probably a good place to get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to write this book in the first place. Yeah, you know, I, I've i never been the type of person that's been big into like, here's my life goal, here's what's going to happen, and vision boards and goals, like annual words, like anything like that. But I've also um, definitely walked through seasons where I thought that life would go a certain way, um, whether I was aware of it or not. And so um, in 2019, I was walking through a heavy season. I was laid off from my job, which is a really scary thing as a single person with one income making rent alone. Um, And that was something that I thought would be very temporary. And it ended up being about 15 months because it was right before COVID. Um, And so there were a lot of fears that I was having to work out with God and to say, whoa, is he really a provider? Like, uh, what do I do when this just feels so out of my control? And at the beginning of that season as well, um, actually on the last day of my job, uh, I got a text message from a friend of mine that she needed prayer because she wasn't doing well um, health-wise. And that was the beginning of an 86-day journey of her um, dying of cancer and going to be with Jesus. And so walking with her through that season was hard because, um, you know, I'm 33 now. Um, at the time I was 30. And so it was this feeling of, wait, we're too young to be having these conversations. We're too young for our friends to pass away. Um, And yet there we were in the midst of it. So there's joblessness and there's grief and um, losing a dear friend and also holding on to this hope that this isn't all there is and trying to walk through that faithfully. And at the same time, I was working um, and continue to work as a tour guide at Orchard House in Concord, where Little Women was written. And that book is very famously about grief and loss. Um, And so I kind of weave them together in this book, this idea of loss is not new to us. It's been happening since the dawn of time. Um, But here's how Jesus meets us in the midst. It is interesting. We have these kind of seasons where that becomes a much more realistic circumstance that we all have to come to address uh, we we can kind of skirt around it for a long, large period of our life where we're just kind of blissfully unaware of this looming shadow, but uh, that shadow is always there. And when it comes into focus, it can be quite scary. Yeah, absolutely. I think in theory, you know, we say certain things are true, but when you have to live it out, when you have to walk it out, all of a sudden it takes on a whole new meaning. Um, This happened literally last week, but I had wrist surgery and I had a cast on for a couple weeks. And so in theory, I understood that there was a lot going on under that cast, that there were stitches and, and sore muscles, but I didn't really know until they took off the cast 
and I am not particularly squeamish, but I almost passed out. Uh, I got very lightheaded because all of a sudden it was like, whoa, this is very real. I'm looking at my wrist and I'm like feeling weirded out. Uh, and it's just funny to me, like even in little things regularly, we think we have an idea of what something is going to be. We have an idea of our lives or our careers or whatever, but oh, it is wildly out of our control. And I'm surprised we don't pass out more often. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of out of sight, out of mind. And we sort of live in a culture where... Uh, the whole idea is to keep things out of sight, to make things so that they're not, uh, you know, prominent and upfront in front of us. Uh, we're kind of, uh, you know, entertainment and media keeps us from actually focusing on reality in some way. Oh, absolutely. I think we live in an age of endless distractions. Mm -hmm. And so it's not hard to pretend that everything is fine. It's not hard to just sort of get sucked into, um, you know, watching reels on Instagram or people that are on TikTok or whatever. It's, it's, it's not hard to distract yourself in this day and age. And I think even when we are stressed, maybe it could be work stress, family stress, whatever. It's also easy to kind of numb ourselves out with those distractions and to say, you know, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just not going to think about it. But at a certain point, we have to face it much like having to face the reality of my wrist being in pain post-surgery like, I can't just pretend it's not happening. It has to be dealt with. It has to be um, kind of recovered from. And so I think that there's um, a natural instinct in us to be well, right? We want we don't want to be in pain. We don't want to be dealing with these scary ideas like death and dying and how out of control life is. But I think, especially as Christians, you know, there's this juxtaposition of a hope that we carry that means that we can surrender to that and we can say, oh, this is scary. And at the same time, not um, in juxtaposition to that, um, like at the same time, God is still good and he still has something um, for us and he is in control. And that should be a comfort to us in the midst of our wanting to avoid. Mm. Now, you mentioned that this came at a kind of cross section in your life where you were in a place where uh, your vulnerability was very apparent, but also your friend and also this work, a kind of a trifecta of things that kind of brought this to the forefront of your mind and the, the kind of weaving story of this book. Tell us a little bit about that intersection. Well, I think that life is everything all at once, right? Um, I think about how we try to organize things to some degree. Right. We try to sit down and say, OK, um, you know, this is what this season will be. This is what my goals will be, whatever those things are. Uh, but at a certain point, it doesn't go according to plan. And I think that we have to understand that it is never first of all, it's never going to go according to our plan. It'll always go according to God's plan. But second of all, something that has been really helpful for me to think about recently, and I don't know if this will answer your question exactly or not, but is the and nature of life, that it's not this or this, it's this and this. So I could be celebrating a friend's birthday and really sad that my friend has died. I could be celebrating um, somebody having a retirement party while still being stressed out about my career. There are ways that we live where we think it's only one or the other, that we're happy or we're sad, but sometimes it's a combination of both. And I think that's part of just the human condition is this idea that God has made us with a whole lot of emotions, with a whole lot of experiences. And I don't think his expectation for us is like, 
hold it together all the time um, or fall apart all the time. It's, it's kind of both. And so when I think about that, you know, it's, it's a gift to be able to be fully human and to be human before a God that does not expect us to be anything but human, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. The, the life is a lot more complicated than we like to make it out to be. It's certainly much more complicated than what we see on the screen, right? And uh, what we project on our own screens when we try to put it up on social media. Uh, you can look at somebody's life, somebody you're close to, and never realize that they're actually going through some major hardships because what they're projecting online and social media is always this sort of positive, kind of glossed over, photoshopped per, uh, version of their story. Yeah, I mean, that is such a common thing. You think about even just the idea of filters, right? Mm. That people put filters on their um, Instagram stories. And I get it. Like, maybe it looks cool. Maybe it's kind of fun or goofy. It turns you into a dog or gives you, you know, like less blemishes on your face. I don't know. But it also really points to the underlying problem that can happen with social media. I think the internet is a great place and there are some really beautiful things. In fact, just last week, a friend of mine got a call that they were adopting a child and the child came a month early. And so they were like, oh, we got to go. Like it is go time a month before. And they were raising support to try to um, afford this adoption. And all of a sudden they just lost four weeks of support raising time and they needed it now. And we went on the internet and we shared it on social media. And, um, you know, within 12 hours, they were taken care of. So the internet is a great place. But I think it also lends itself to it can be a very polished place. It can be a very um, sort of in some ways, uh, like the word I'm trying to think of is like almost like manicured or like it's it's a polished version of your real life. Um, and when we do that and when we live in that space, I think it's not good for our souls. Mm. And so one of the things that I try to think through with social media is, first of all, is this thing true? And second of all, is this the sort of thing that needs to be on the internet? Um, sometimes the internet is good for things, like I mentioned, but sometimes it kind of exacerbates issues that are already there. If you are feeling um, a sense of needing attention from other people, maybe that's not the greatest place. Maybe you need to talk to your actual people in real life right? Um, Maybe you need to sort of take a step back. And so when we go on our phones and we start looking for things that God has made us for, ultimately in that space, I think we're in a dangerous place. But if we're also like, hey, I want to build community. I want to stay in touch with friends from college, things like that. It, It can be a good place. And so I think we have to really think through like, what is my motive in posting this? What is it that I'm feeling a longing for? What is it that I feel a desire for? And are those things to be met with, um, like, are we supposed to be met by the internet uh, in those things? Um, Or is it that we're using the internet in place of God or community or things that are good and real um, because we think it'll work out better in our favor, which again has to do with control, which of course doesn't really exist because nothing's in our control. Mm -hmm. But even before the internet, we had the the, the problems of uh, you know going to church or a, a gathering with other people, and they say, "How are you doing?" And you go, "Oh, I'm fine. I'm good," fine. and not yeah. really opening up. You know, we still have those problems even to this day. And the reality is, life is really about helping each other and bearing one another's burdens. And that's something that you've you've kind of written about in this book, where while going through this whole process of dealing with loss. Uh, you realize that you really weren't alone in that process. Yeah, I think there is a beauty to community and we don't realize it until we need it. We Mm -hmm. don't realize how 
amazing our community is until we face a hard thing. But I think a lot of the time we don't develop community in sunny seasons and then the rains come and all of a sudden we're like, oh no, like I don't have the relational uh, depth here to be met in these ways. And so when I think about community and real life and, and the Lord using other people, um, I'm continually, first of all, just wowed by it and grateful for it. But something I've realized is it has taken a very long time to intentionally cultivate it. And I think a lot of people think community is just going to happen. And it did in some parts of our lives, right? When we were in high school and we went to youth group or we went to, we were on a sports team or we were in class. You're just naturally around people. You naturally make friends. I would think of my friends from high school and college as, oh, we have this class together and that's how we met, right? My friend who passed away, we met in the laundry room. Like you just naturally are kind of bumping into people. But I think as we get older, we assume it will be that easy. And then when it's not, we kind of shut down. We don't take an interest. We complain about it. We get cynical about it. But it's like, hey, sometimes you have to text people more than once. Sometimes you have to pursue them. Just the other day, um, a friend and I were talking about our friendship because it's a new friendship. Um, We've gotten to know each other in the last few months. And I said to her, hey, are you the type of person that I need to reach (laughs) out to you if we're going to hang out? Like, does that stress you out? Or do you want to reach out to me? Like, how do you function in relationships? And it's such an almost strange thing to say. And yet that intentionality is what allowed her to say, oh, I'm really bad at reaching out, but I do want to hang out. Please reach out to me. And then I knew it's not personal. If I don't hear from her for a minute, she does want to be my friend. So I think it allows um, to, you know, it's like that phrase that I've heard floating around. I think maybe Brené Brown or someone who talks about relationships a lot says it as like, you know, like kind, like clarity is kind. Right. And so when we offer clarity and intentionality in in relationship, it allows us to have better relationships. It allows us to not build scenarios in our head where we think someone doesn't like us um, or we think too much about ourselves or not enough about ourselves or whatever. Uh, And it allows us to see things as they really are. And then when hard things happen, that community is there because you've established in a healthy grown-up way a relationship and you know that you can reach out to that person because you've taken the time to intentionally cultivate that relationship previously Uh, tell us a little bit about one of the central characters in your book tell us a little bit about jill oh goodness um jill was the type of person i sometimes like to say is the type of person because she still very much so exists right both in our, our memories but also um, she's with Jesus. She's great. She's doing wonderfully right now. She's living her best life. Um, Jill was and is a fun person. She is the party. Uh, lots of goofy humor, lots of um, sarcasm in a good way. But at the same time, it was paired with a sense of compassion and care. Um, she did ministry in a lot of different places that are hard to go. She did a lot of um, ministry, like her internship one year was in Amsterdam, right? Which is this hub of a lot of darkness. And, and yet she was there loving women and caring for people and telling them about Jesus. And so, you know, she was always up for an adventure and, um, is now on the greatest adventure. And, um, yeah, she is just one of my favorite people. And I miss a lot having conversations with her, uh, because she knew how to meet something with humor, but she also knew how to meet something with uh, genuine heart and, and care for others. 
when you first found out that she had cancer, and, and you talk about this in the book and the walking through those different uh, conversations with her, um, tell us a little bit about how that story uh, transpired and how it progressed. Yeah, you know, one of the things I like to make really clear in interviews like this, because I think someone might hear this story and think to themselves, oh, well, I don't know if, if my relationships would go that way. Um, Jill and I were good friends in college. She was one of my very closest friends and I was in her wedding. And then there were several years in which we didn't talk to each other a ton. Um, you know, we kind of grow apart the way college friends grow apart. And so when she got sick is when we really dug deep and talked to each other really consistently and really often again. Um, and it is the greatest joy of my life, um, and honor of my life to have been her friend. Um, but I also don't want someone to think like, oh, this was my closest confidant all the time. And then she got sick and we just kept going with that. We made a conscious decision to show up at the very end of her life and to really, uh, lean into our friendship. And so when I found out she was sick, it was a surprise, uh, because I didn't know. It's not like I had been talking to her and she'd been like, oh, I've been in pain. Oh, I have a doctor's appointment. Like, no, it just was like right out the gate. I've been having these health problems. This is what's going on. I've been diagnosed with cancer. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, this is, this is, and it wasn't pretty rapid succession, but I think that when I found out, you know, there's this fear that you have of the worst happening. And then you kind of rally and you're like, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. And then at a certain point, you kind of calm down enough to say, actually, I don't know what's going to happen. And the best thing in this case is not to just pretend it's fine and to not just pretend that the world is ending. Like you have to find some sort of middle ground. And there were days that during our conversations, um, she would call me out when I said dumb stuff to her. <laughs> like, I remember one time she was in pain and I said, oh, like, what is it that's hurting? Like, I'm trying to understand, right? I don't have cancer. I don't know what this is like. Is it, you know, is it you're feeling pain because like your muscles are tired? Is it like where you have tumors because she had um, cancer in her abdomen? And she uh, finally said to me, she was like, yeah, Melissa, like my my cancer hurts. Like, I don't know what else to say to you. And I realized, oh, right. It's probably not helpful to you in pain to be questioned about your pain. Like it just it just isn't. And she was willing to say, hey, that's not helpful for me right now. And so I think that things got very real with us very quickly. Um, and I realized all of the ways that I was being an unhelpful friend, but I think it also allowed me to then be a helpful friend and to say, okay, great. Then what do you want to talk about? Do you want to watch Netflix? Do you want to read Bible stories? Like, what do you want to do? And kind of, uh, it removed that sense of, I need to come in and fix it or help her because that's a natural thing. When our friends are not doing well, we want to fix it or help. But sometimes the best thing we can do is just say, what do you need? And trust that they're going to tell us what they need. Um, and she was really, really good about that. And so I think the experience of her being sick went from, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this is happening to what do I do to, oh, I just need to be a present friend. Uh, and that's what's going to sort of walk us through this season. Um, that's the kindness of the Lord saying, just be present. And that's going to have to be enough because Jesus is the only one who's going to really truly be able to bring comfort um, in a deeper way. And I'm just a vessel for whatever it is that he's doing. I'm sure the question came up, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And you wrestle with this in the book where you're looking at scripture in, in light of all of these things. And there's a whole, there's a whole canon of scripture that shows us that we're, that suffering is a part of the human experience and it's something that can't be avoided. Yeah. I mean, Suffering 
you know, I, I remember years ago, um, a friend of mine from high school died when I was a sophomore in high school or sorry, not a sophomore in high school, a sophomore in college. Um, he was a freshman in college and his name was Clayton. He's a wonderful human being who is also with Jesus. Uh, and I just, I remember wanting to be so mad about that and, and being mad about that, right? A 19 year old dies. What, like what on earth? That's awful. Um, and there were two things that came to mind that I feel like I've sort of clung to in every grief or loss or um, broken moment since then. One of them is Jesus loves Clayton and is also really sad that he's sick, that he doesn't love this, that he is mad that death exists. And therefore, my anger in that is justified. Um, my understanding of this is really messed up is totally understandable because we're not supposed to experience death in the very beginning. That wasn't part of the plan. And then sin enters the world. Right. And the second thing was, I just kept bumping into this wall of, you know, what do we do about grief? What do we do about death and evil and all of these issues? And the encouragement that I think that the Holy Spirit sort of gave me that has continued to be true uh, and, you know, because it's it's based on what we know from scripture is this idea that like when we ask questions, we need to ask the right questions. So it's not a matter of how could this have happened? We know how this happened. Like sin has entered the world and death is present. Like we know that from reading our Bibles. But then the question that's the most helpful at times is so now what do we do? Like we're in it. We've got to figure out what to do next. And so it's not so much of a why does this exist as much as a how do we try to walk through it um, with the help of God. And I think that that is the thing that I keep coming back to. Mm. Jill died because the world is broken and death is a part of life and it is awful and it is terrible and it is no good. At the same time, we have this hope in Jesus we have this understanding that we will see her again, that she is healed, that she is well, and that's a good thing. And so my question has to be, okay, so now that I'm here, sort of left behind while she's off, you know, in eternity, how do I allow the next one year, five years, 40 years, 50 years, I don't know how long the Lord has for me, but how do I allow that to, to be a now what? So yes, death has happened. Now what? How do I love people? How do I invest in my friendships? I am so much more intentional with relationships now because of those years that felt lost where I didn't talk to Jill constantly. Mm -hmm. um, I am so much more aware of those things and I find delight in friendships in ways I didn't. And I try to allow that to move me, understanding that I'm not going to get the nuance of death, um, but I'll face it one day. And we all will face it one day. And so the best we can do sometimes is to say, well, then how do I keep living and living for the good of others and the glory of God? There's another central character in your book, and uh, I think it's rather unique in how you interweave this into the story of your life and, and Jill's life. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, as far as Louisa goes, yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> um, yeah. So I also tell the story in the book. of I, I affectionately refer to her as Lou. Um, Louisa May Alcott, who is one of the greatest writers of her generation, she made more money than Mark Twain. Like people don't realize how successful of a writer she was. She sold 50,000 copies of Little Men, which is the sequel to Little Women, before it even came out. And in today's publishing world, because that's my nine to five job, 
we consider a book successful if it can sell like three, four thousand copies in the first 18 months. So it's like, oh, that was pretty good. Uh, so 50,000 before it even comes out. Right. And so she was this very successful author in the 1800s uh, around the time of the Civil War. Um, but she also wrote about grief and loss in the mm. story of Little Women. And people were not used to that. And she kind of pioneered a conversation that wasn't just fairy tales, but it was real life. And so as I think through her life, there is all this success, certainly, but there's a whole lot of loss. Um, two of her sisters died way too young. One was in her 30s, one was in her 20s. Um, she walked through watching um, her family struggle with poverty and having to kind of lift them out of that with her writing. She had a whole lot of pressure in that way. Uh, she was lonely a lot of the time. She was despairing a lot of the time. Um, she was absolutely riddled with amazing success, but absolutely devastating heartache. And so I think that Louisa's story is kind of all of us, right? Every human story is pretty darn similar. Um, something's broken and needs fixing, and we're looking for something that will help that. But I think that her story uniquely mirrored mine in that she lost someone too soon um, and she was trying to live her life um, in sort of recovery of that, but as as also like as in a way of honoring her sister. She was trying to honor her sister, Beth. And so um, writing about Lou has, I feel that she's sort of become a friend, if that sounds a little, <laughs> that sounds a little weird, but you know, I still spend time in that house, in her room, dusting her room and giving tours in her room and being present in those spaces. And I think, especially in New England, you know, like being based here, I think that houses and special places have a memory. Just like when I stood, you know, next to the the Western Wall in Jerusalem or when I've been um, in these places that have history in them, you just there's something different about it going, whoa, this is really where it happened. These are the steps where Jesus walked. These are the places where this famous person was. And I think about Louisa and I think, wow, what a legacy of celebrating ordinary life um, and walking through grief, um, but also just being intensely honest. And I think that's one of the biggest things I get from her is you can't convince her to be fake. Uh, I read her journals and she talks about how like after she got famous, like she'd go to parties and people would, everyone would want to hang out with her. And she was just like, I don't want to hang out with any of these people. They're making me crazy. I'm not interested in this. Like she just would be like not impressed by anyone trying to flatter her. Mm -hmm. And so I think her honesty sort of forged a way for me to say, oh, you can talk about grief and you can talk about humor uh, and it's just part of the experience, whether you're in the 1800s or, you know, the 2000s. You mentioned this as well, that uh, there's one way in which her story isn't a reflection or something reality that a lot of us can face because uh, we aren't going to go straight from our pro poverty to riches uh, with a quick fix like uh, publishing a great book. Uh, but this is a kind of a crucial component to where a lot of people are at. They're looking for an escape. They're looking for that overnight success. They want yeah. to, to escape their grief as opposed to really work through it in the process that is slow and painful and and not always um, having an immediate response or immediate outcome. Yeah, I mean, we don't know which one we are. Right. We don't know if we're the person that has absolute tragedy strike and it seems absolutely um, devastating and pointless and frivolous. Like we don't know if we're that person 
And that's what they'll say about us of like, oh, and then this thing happened and it was just awful. Um, we don't know if it's that. We don't know if we're the person where something hard happens and we make it to the other side. We just don't know. Uh, and I think that that involves there has to be a certain amount of humility around that to say, whoa, uh, I don't know how this is going to go at all. And and yes, we certainly know that there is victory on the other side. Right. In eternity. But at the same time, in on this side of eternity, we just we don't know. And so I think it's a constant sitting down with the Lord and saying, God, like, what do you have for me right now with what I have? Um, and not letting that scare us into being like, I don't know what's going to happen, but really saying, Lord, you have something for me. Help me to do it well. Help me to do it faithfully um, because you're so right. Like I almost didn't, and I write about it in the book. I almost didn't want to talk about her success with little women because I didn't want people to be like, and then she was rich, the end. Like, <laughs> no, she was rich, but then her sister got sick and died and horrible things happened. Like we can't, we often think that the end of the story is when it gets uh, good, so to speak, or exciting or hopeful. Um, but that's not always the end of the story. And so sometimes sitting down and saying, wow, this is what it is. Um, looking for the gratitude in the midst of the hard thing, looking for the sense of hope, but also saying uh, to ourselves, like, good thing that we know the end, end, end goal here, um, because sometimes that helps us to focus in these moments when it just feels like darkness and really messed up stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of saying the world is really messed up and broken. I don't know how it's going to go. And yet asking ourselves the question, will you let Jesus be enough if that's the way it goes? Like you think about marriage vows and sickness and health and, and uh, plenty and want and all of those places. If we are the bride of Christ, do we look at our relationship with Jesus that way? Do I say to the Lord, Lord, whether this book is a success or not, we're in it, right? Whether I uh, live to be 90 or I live to be 35, like we're in it. Like, am I willing to have that sense of commitment that come hell or high water, we are in it together? Uh, I think is a really challenging thing, but I think it really would change the way that we live our lives in light of the death that we experience over and over and over again. For any, any of our listeners who are going through grief, uh, maybe it's uh, very recent, maybe it's been uh, a long process of many years of suffering through grief, or, or for anyone who's suffered any loss over these past several years, it's pretty much affected everyone, I'm sure, who's listening. How does Jesus in that context hold us together throughout those painful periods where we seem to be falling apart? I think that Jesus holds us together in ways we're aware of and not aware of. Mm -hmm. There are things that happen that we go, whoa, I didn't even know that was happening. I didn't know that person was praying for me. I didn't know that that individual um, was walking through a similar experience as me and we were going to meet up later and have that. You know, I think about the ways that God is preparing right now friendships that we haven't even met those people yet. Right. There is something it's not like when we become friends with somebody or when we meet our spouse or whatever it is like it's not like there's no history there. They're doing something right now. I'm single. If I ever get married, it's not like he doesn't exist right now. He's at work or he's walking through a season of looking for work. I don't know what he's experiencing, but there's something going on that I'm unaware of. And I think that that is so much of a posture that we have to hold is to say, Lord, there are things going on. I do not understand and I do not know, but I'm going to trust that it exists. And sometimes we need to reach out to our friends and say, hey, I'm going to trust that this exists. 
Uh, I recently was talking to a friend who's walking through a heavy season who is not seeing the hope and the joy of life right now and is really struggling. And I just said, hey, I'm going to believe that it's going to happen for you because you can't believe that for yourself right now. Like I'm going to remember the faithfulness of Jesus. And I want you to know that someone is remembering that for you. And while we can't do that spiritually, like it's not like my salvation will just like go to someone else or something like that. I think there's such an encouragement when someone is saying, Hey, I'm going to be in the midst of this cheering for you and praying for you and interceding for you and kind of getting in the trenches. And I talk about that a little in the book, being willing to get into the trenches. And so when it comes time to um, walk out, whatever it is that we have, I think that spirit of Lord, you're doing something, even if I don't understand it is sometimes what gives us sanity when we're walking through a heavy season Uh, and also asking the Lord to show us in really small ways, I think can sometimes go a long way. Um, something I regularly talk about, it's kind of a joke on social media is the stink bug, the faithful little stink bug, which we have plenty of in new England. Um, during the lowest point in that season, I remember I was laying on my living room floor. It was really a high point for me. (laughs) I was laying on the living room floor and I said, Jesus, I just need to know I'm not alone because I feel like I'm completely alone. And right then I look up and a little stink bug was like walking across my kitchen floor. And I thought, well, at least I have a stink bug. And it became this sort of joke, right? That Jesus is always near like a stink bug in New England in the winter. Like there's always one around. In fact, literally, as we've been talking, uh, I looked over and there's just a stink bug walking around (laughs) my living room right now. And it's this reminder, right, of the ever present God that we serve. Uh, And so I'd say asking the Lord, will you just show me? that I'm not alone. And it could be something as small as a stink bug, but holding on to that and saying, thank you, Jesus, for showing me that means that every time I see a stink bug now, I'm like, Jesus is present. Jesus is present. Um, Even when I don't see a stink bug. And so I think that that is something that's helpful is know that there are things that you don't see, but asking the Lord to have eyes to see what you can. I know for a lot of people who are dealing with loss or suffering grief, um, they can't resonate with the idea that 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 they that uh, that their circumstances are going to work out in some grand fashion in the glory of God. But uh, we can be comforted in the fact that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and suffering has been a part of every one of their experiences. And uh, God has always been faithful. In the end, we can learn from that. Uh, th- those who have gone before us in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has always proven Himself faithful. Yeah, absolutely. I think the faithfulness of God is something that is, it has always happened and it continues to happen. I think that's the cool thing about it is every day, every moment that we continue on, his faithfulness is just getting more and more and more. Uh, and and it is infinite. And yet it's not the kind of thing that was like, whoa, God was really faithful back then. Like God mm-hmm. was really faithful to those people during Moses time. And that was it. It's like, no, it was during Moses time. And it was during the 1800s. And it's now and it's tomorrow, right? Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever as Hebrews tell us tells us. So it is a joy to think about the faithfulness of God is something that just keeps getting richer and richer and richer. And it does not dwindle. And one of the phrases I like to use is like, he does not stop. Like, he does not stop being good. He does not stop being kind. He does not stop being faithful. Um, And we have to stop a lot and we have to (laughs) collapse a lot. But there is a gift knowing that 
uh, we have a God who is just faithful and he just keeps getting more so. I'm sure that many of our listeners would be comforted to know, as you've said, that there were people that were praying for you without even knowing. But uh, with that being said, could I ask you to pray for our listeners, especially those who are dealing with grief? You can relate to that in in a way that uh, is really important to them. So could I ask you to pray? Yeah, absolutely. Um, God, you are good and you're faithful and you're strong and we're thankful. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to you um, and to witness anew what you are doing, um, to see the ways that you are giving us another day. Lord, I think about the covenant you made with Noah that, you know, you wouldn't flood the earth again, but also you said there would be seasons and there would be night and there would be day and there would be these rhythms to life. And so every day, Lord, is a promise kept. Um, It's not just during rainstorms, but it is kept when the sun rises and when the seasons change. And we thank you for your faithfulness in and out of these seasons and these days. Lord, I pray for those who are walking through a heavy place, for those who are at a loss of words. Would you surround them with community? Would you give them the ability to reach out, even if it's just in a text to a few friends and say, hey, I need help? And would you allow them to be met in that? Um, Lord, you give us the gift of one another and you give us the tangible ability to be together. And so I pray that you would give community to those who need it most. Lord, and for those who are about to walk into a hard season and they don't even know it, would you be forging relationships even now um, that will be there for them through that season, that will help carry them through that season? Lord, none of us gets out of this world without pain, without grief. And so we ask that you would help us to bear it um, well and to bring it to you, knowing that you're the only one uh, who can allow us um, the grace to make it through. And so we thank you for that. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been talking with Melissa Zaldivar about her book. It's called What Cannot Be Lost, How Jesus Holds Us Together When Life Is Falling Apart. And obviously, this is a great book. We would love to uh, help you find more information about it by giving us a call, 508-362-7070. But Melissa, this is something I don't think I've ever been able to tell our listeners, but maybe some of our listeners here in New England could actually meet you and and come to one of your tours. So if somebody wanted to actually uh, visit uh, Concord, Massachusetts, you know, tell them a little bit about how they might be able to join in on one of your tours of uh, Louisa May Alcott. Yeah, absolutely. So you can come to Alcott's uh, Orchard House. We are open almost every single day of the year. We're only closed a couple of holidays. And you can find us online. um, If you just look up Orchard House, Concord, Massachusetts, it's there. But if you wanted to have specifically a tour with me, the easiest way to get in touch is probably Instagram or my website. So my website is just melissazaldivar.com. Uh, and I'm sure that that will be made available through promo, how to spell my weird last name. Uh, and then also Instagram, shoot me a DM, say, Hey, I'm coming to Orchard house or when can I come? And, um, we can find a time to do that. Cause I love doing tours, uh, with people who I have a connection with. It just makes it a little bit more fun. Well, that's such a unique thing. I don't think I've ever been able to uh, let people know that they could actually meet you in person, meet the person we've been talking to. It's a real privilege. Thank you once again for this book and for taking the time to join us and being a part of the many voices for that one message. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.